if this life I lose, I will follow you. It's quite a prayer to pray. It's quite a dangerous prayer to pray. Sometimes the Lord leads us into areas where we may not choose to go on our own. Sometimes those are areas of mission where physical danger is high. Sometimes those are areas of suffering where we would like to stay out of. Nonetheless, that prayer, the heart of that song is that God can be trusted. That God is entirely trustworthy and he does no wrong to his children. And so it's right to have sung that song in our congregation this morning because as Patty said, we're going to look at Mark's account of the calling of the disciples this morning. So if you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn to Mark chapter 1. Mark chapter 1, we'll be picking up in verse 14. And while you're turning there, I want to say this. <clears throat> Everything Mark has said up until this point will bear down on this story, on this episode. Everything Mark has said about Jesus, which he said from the beginning, that he is God, that he is the fulfillment of the Old Testament, that he has authority, that he has beaten Satan, that he's come to wage war against the spiritual realities, the enemies of God, all of that will now bear down on what comes next. You see, if, if Jesus does not have all of the authority and all of the standing that Mark has said, then the rest of the story makes no sense. If Jesus does not have the authority of God himself, then what he is about to do and the things he is about to say carry no weight. But... That's not the case. Mark has said and has gone to great lengths to show us Jesus is in fact God. Jesus is in fact the fulfillment of the Old Testament scriptures. Jesus does in fact have all authority. And so what he is about to say comes with all of that behind it. So, if you have in your Bibles, open to Mark 1. I invite you to stand. We stand to honor the reading of God's word. Mark chapter 1, picking up in verse 14. It says, Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God, and saying, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Passing along the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, follow me and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee and John, his brother, who were in their boat, mending their nets. And immediately he called to them and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. Let's pray. Lord, as we come now to your word, we pray that you would open it to our hearts and our minds. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would cause this word, this eternal, unchanging, steadfast word, to work in our hearts and in our minds this day. Cause faith, cause salvation, cause steadiness. We ask this in your holy name. Amen. You may be seated. So you see this morning in your notes, the main idea of this sermon is this. Jesus, the divine Son of God, has come to inaugurate the kingdom 
or to begin the kingdom by proclaiming the gospel to faithful followers who will in turn carry the gospel to the ends of the earth or to all people. That he's come to inaugurate the kingdom of God by proclaiming the gospel. And in proclaiming the gospel, he will find faithful followers who will in turn carry the gospel around the world. And so as I said, Mark's introduction and all that's gone before it, all the fulfillment pictures stand behind this episode. They stand behind this story. And without the authority of verses 1 through 13, Jesus' commands to follow ring hollow. They don't have the compelling authority that we would expect. But because he, is, he does have authority and because it is absolute authority, Jesus' commands, they beckon us, they compel us to follow. He's not laying out a sales pitch as to why he's the best choice. When Jesus calls, the disciples follow. And that's what Mark wants us to see. And so I want to pick up in verse 14 with the first point on your notes. The time is right. The kingdom is here. Jesus says the time is right or the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. And so one of Mark's central themes is the coming of the kingdom of God. He wants us to see that Jesus brought with him this kingdom And not just any kingdom, it is God's kingdom that is to be established on the earth. Now, if you've been in and around church any duration of your life, or even most of your life, you've probably heard the phrase, the kingdom of God. And maybe you don't know what to think of that. Maybe you do know what to think of that. Maybe you think think of it as only something that is to be enjoyed in heaven. Mark's language here, the way Mark says it through Jesus, now the way ultimately it's Jesus saying it, but the way that it's stated is this, the kingdom is a present reality. So this is a question that you can ask yourselves even this morning. How do you today, how are you enjoying the kingdom of God? Now, not, you know, pretty good, pretty bad. Not that kind of how are you enjoying it. How practically are you engaging with the kingdom of God? When you get up in the mornings, do you think you're doing kingdom work? When you're parenting your children, are you thinking, I'm doing kingdom work? When you are praying together, do you realize we're doing kingdom work? We'll talk some more about that. But one of Mark's central themes is that Christ has come to establish the kingdom of God And one of the ways in which we see that is that he calls the disciples. He calls the disciples and forms his group of disciples. And so the disciples, through the empowering of the Holy Spirit, begin to preach and establish the kingdom through making other disciples. They preach and they call others to come and follow. They preach and they call others to come and know Jesus and to live life after Jesus. And so what we see from the get-go is that in the Christian life, in the New Testament church of Jesus Christ, discipleship is not optional. We don't get to decide whether I'm going to be a Christian who also is involved in discipleship or not. You see, the word Christian and the word disciple are the same words in the Bible. Discipleship or following Jesus or learning Jesus is not an option. It is essential to what it means to follow Jesus. It's essential to what the kingdom of God on earth means. 
And so disciples then are not merely followers of Jesus' way of living. They are. We do follow Jesus' way of living, but that's not all. We are also ambassadors who are active in the advancement of the kingdom of God. Ambassadors who are active in the advancement of the kingdom of God. But I'll come back to that in just a few moments. You see, when Jesus proclaims the kingdom of God, he announces this decisive display of God's ruling power in the world. And what he's saying is, God is about to begin something, and it will be clear, and it will be utter, and it will be inarguable. What God is about to do will be decisive. It will be victorious. There's not an option here for God not to succeed. And so let me ask yourself this question. I noted this last night as I was meditating over this in my own life. I just scribbled this note. How do you see God's kingdom reigning in your life? Just ponder that in your own heart and your mind right now. Do you? Do you conceive of your life as going on in the kingdom of God? Now, when we think about a kingdom, when I think about a kingdom, I think about a castle on a hill somewhere in the European countryside. I don't know why. That's just what I think about. And the people who live in that kingdom live around that castle. And so when I'm thinking about a kingdom, I don't always think about my life in that way. That's just not one of those pictures that comes into my mind when I think about what does it mean to be a Christian. But Mark's text challenges me on that, actually confronts me on that and says that's wrong because if I am a Christian, if I am a follower of Jesus, then my life happens in the context of God's kingdom. It's wrong of me not to think of my life as happening inside of God's kingdom. And so that affects everything. That affects my husbanding inside of God's kingdom. That means it happens inside God's kingdom. That means my parenting happens inside of God's kingdom. And that's challenging. That's confronting. If you're a parent, sometimes it just brings you to the edge of being just raw. And yet, that is an action, that is an activity of God's kingdom. But everything in the world, everything in our lives happens in God's kingdom. Let's pause for a moment and pray. Would you? Let's pray for him just quickly. Lord, we know that you are uh, aware of what's going on. We pray, Lord, that ladies can help him. We know that he's made in your image and you love him. And so, Lord, now as we continue to devote ourselves to the word, I pray that you would give them the skill and the clarity of mind that they need. In your name we pray, amen. That, too, is happening inside of the kingdom of God. There is nothing in our lives that takes place apart from it. And so, as I was thinking about how this text even applies in my own life last night, I'm asking myself that question. How do I see the kingdom of God reigning in my life? Because you see, no one can stand in the way of God's kingdom. No one gets in the way of it. It happens. It is a force which cannot be reckoned with. Sometimes we think we can argue with God over things, or I'll give God this part of my life, but I will enjoy this part. Or I won't think about this aspect of my life as being connected to God. This is just my leisure time or my hobby time or this is the sin that I enjoy. But I'll, I'll be godly over here. And you see, that's not the way the kingdom of God works. 
The announcement of the kingdom of God is a universal call for submission. It is a universal call for submission. And that submission comes through repentance and faith. It comes through repentance and faith. We see that in verse 15 when Jesus says, The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe. Repent and believe in the gospel, he says. So let me ask you this question. What does it mean to repent? What does it mean to repent? It's, an, it's a specifically Christian activity, repentance. It's not normal to our earthly lives. It's not something we would do of our own choice apart from the grace of God. But see, our culture seems to have lost its understanding of repentance. And by culture, I mean our Christian culture. We don't see a lot of repentance going on anymore. You see, the majority of repentance, brothers and sisters, goes on between relationships. That's why before we ever receive the Lord's Supper, Paul says, if there is an issue between you and a brother, you go to him. Repentance happens in the context of relationships. Listen to what one pastor said. He said, many have washed, deodorized, and perfumed their spiritual lives through a variety of religious rituals and believe that they have done their duty before God while countless unconfessed sins lurk in their hearts. So many Christians, he says, have tried to dress themselves up on the outside, tried to present themselves as beautiful and active Christians, and yet they harbor sin in their hearts and in their lives like they think that that's okay. And you might fool me. I might fool you. But God is not fooled. Which is why Galatians says those terrifying words, Galatians chapter 6, be deceived brothers and sisters God is not mocked his kingdom is not mocked many of us treat repentance like Huck Finn's alcoholic pappy perhaps you've heard the story it says the old drunk cried and cried when Judge Thatcher talked to him about temperance and such things he said he'd been a fool and was going to turn over a new leaf and everyone hugged him and cried and said it was the holiest time on record. And that night, he got drunker than he ever had before. Many of us treat repentance like that. We feel conviction in the moment. We, we try to repent in the moment, and yet there is no genuine change that lingers from it. Just like Pappy, we return to the very thing over which we repented, which is evidence that we never truly repented. Repentance does not mean walking the aisle, does not mean confessing some of our sin. It does not mean we're deciding to turn over a new leaf. Repentance is not just rededicating ourselves to trying harder and doing better. Repentance, brothers and sisters, is a total change in the direction of my life. Repentance is a total change in the direction of my life. And the kingdom of God derails the kingdom of God derails our normal patterns of living. God doesn't come on the scene in Jesus Christ and say, hey, I'm the best choice. Everybody just come on over here. Keep things basically how you're going. Don't mess up your Monday through Friday schedule. I'm pretty easy. I'm just, I'm the better choice. That's not the picture that we see in this text. What we see here is that the kingdom of God derails the life of the disciples. 
and it will continue to derail the lives of everybody throughout history who comes into contact with Jesus Christ because the gospel of God confronts us in our sin and says we cannot stay here. We cannot continue living this way. You cannot keep one foot in the world and one foot in the kingdom of God. You are entirely in the world at that point. You see, God is not waiting for me to choose him. He's not waiting for me to agree with him that he's the better option. He is establishing, brothers and sisters, he is establishing his kingdom. I would have to think a lot of myself to think that I could somehow get in God's way of establishing his kingdom. You see, even Satan, who we talked about last week, is a creature of God who operates under God's permissions. And Satan, being a spiritual creature by nature, can do more than I can. And I would have to be awfully prideful to think that I could somehow contend with God and mess up his plan. And yet that's not the picture. The picture is that God is establishing his kingdom as a decisive, definite action on his part. (coughs) Excuse me. And so Jesus says the time is right, the kingdom of here, the kingdom is here, repent and believe the gospel. And so we would need to ask the question, well, how does the kingdom become established in the world? How is Jesus saying the kingdom is coming to bear in our daily lives? For you and I living in 2019 in Person County, how does the kingdom of God bear down on us? Because it's the truth of Scripture that it does. Which leads us to our second point on your notes, the calling of the disciples. The calling of the disciples. Having announced the coming of the kingdom of God, Jesus gives us a picture of how the kingdom is established. Having announced the coming of the kingdom of God, Jesus gives us a picture, he gives us an explanation as to how the kingdom is established in the world. He calls his first disciples. He's saying this is how it's going to happen. This is how the kingdom's going to come to bear down in the world. This is how it's going to come into your lives. He calls his disciples. It is established, brothers and sisters, the kingdom of God is established through discipleship. Now, maybe that's overly simplistic to you. That seems very simple to me, at least in my mind, but if have ever engaged in ongoing discipleship where you are in each other's lives and dealing with the good and the bad and the ugly, you know it's taxing work. And it takes everything that you have. And not only does it take all the energy that you have, it requires of us to be open and transparent and show our weaknesses to others. And when we are doing that, we both come to appreciate and recognize the reality of the kingdom of God. But let's just for a moment and let me remind us where we are physically. Jesus has been in the south part of Israel. He's left Galilee, which is green and lush and is farmland and fertile. And he's gone down to the wilderness where John was. He was baptized. He was tempted in the wilderness for 40 days. But now he has come back up north in the region of Galilee. Now, during this time, John the Baptist has been arrested. Some of the other gospels tell us, more detail with that. Mark's preoccupation with, with John was just that he was here to make the way for Jesus. And so the only thing that he tells us is that John was arrested. Now after John was arrested, it says Jesus came into Galilee 
proclaiming the gospel of God. He goes to the Sea of Galilee, which is quite a large body of water. It's about 12 miles long, 6 miles wide or so at its widest. It's a very beautiful place to be. There is a mountain range that circles the sea, so it kind of sits down in a bowl. And so when you're on the shore of the Sea of Galilee, you can look up and see the mountains, and it's just a beautiful place to be, and that's where Jesus was walking. And it says, as he was walking, he sees Simon and his brother Andrew, and he calls them. He calls them to come. He calls them to follow. And so I want to highlight two primary things about this story in Mark's gospel, the calling of these four disciples. The first one is this. I want us to see the authority of Jesus' call and then how we should understand it. But secondly, I want us to see the life of discipleship. I want us to see the authority of Jesus' call and how we should understand that. But also, just briefly, what is the life of discipleship? I think sometimes we think that Jesus was hoping for followers. I think sometimes we think that Jesus just kind of walked around hoping that men and women would see him and want to follow him. Jesus, you, you look pretty great. I'd like to follow you. Well, Jesus, you're better than these other guys. I think I'll follow you instead of them. And you see, that's actually the pattern of, of how things happened in Israel at that time. If a, if a student wanted to follow a particular rabbi, that rabbi didn't come to him. That student would have to go to the rabbi and ask him, may I be your disciple? And the rabbi would then grant him permission or not. That's not what we see with Jesus. Jesus was a radical of his day. He went to his disciples. And he didn't go to the school where the religiously educated people were. He went to the seashore. And he called the men who were not just sitting around twiddling their thumbs. He called the men who were actively at work. And he said, you come and you follow. You see, his call is not merely an invitation to follow. His call is a command to be obeyed or disobeyed. And in the disciples, what we see is that when Jesus calls, his people respond. But first I want to look at this, the authority of Jesus' call and how we should understand it. Unlike John, Jesus is not a prophet wandering in the desert. Jesus is a leader with authority, and he's a leader with authority who is on a mission. And his mission is this, the creation of a community of followers, the creation of the New Testament church, of which you and I are a part. The fact that we are sitting here today, we are in the lineage of what Jesus was doing on the Galilean seashore. Jesus was a leader with authority who was establishing a community of followers. And Jesus uses the phrase, I will make you fishers of men. You've probably heard that over and over and over again. If you've ever been to the sportsman's banquet at Ridgecrest Baptist Church, then you've probably heard it there too, fishers of men. And we often attribute this to the fact that the four men were fishermen already, that Jesus was somehow playing on their livelihood to entice them to follow him. But that's not the best understanding of what Jesus is saying. He's not just simply playing on the fact that these guys were fishermen already. You see, in the Old Testament, the language of fishermen, and specifically fishing hooks, is used for judgment. 
It's used as an image for what God will do to his people as it concerns judgment. God is not passive with our sins. God will judge our sins. And so to show you what I'm speaking of, I want to call your attention to one particular text in the Old Testament. Now, I've listed a number of them in your notes. I would encourage you to look at all of them. But I'm going to read Amos chapter 4, verse 2, where God says, The Lord God has sworn by His holiness that, Behold, the days are coming upon you when they shall take you away with hooks, even the last of you with fish hooks. And so what Jesus is saying is not, hey, you're fishermen, I'll teach you to catch men instead of fish. It's not just this nice little play on words like we sometimes think. Jesus is calling these men to a life of discipleship that confronts sin. He's calling them to execute the judgment of God. Now the judgment of God is this, repent and believe for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now, there are two options at that point. We either repent and believe and find life in his name, or we reject him and find condemnation. And so what God, what Jesus is saying to these men is, by saying, I will call you to be fishers of men, he's empowering them and commissioning them to take the gospel to the world. To take the gospel to the world. And so the disciples then are called to be agents who will bring this message of the gospel to others where their lives will be changed beyond recognition. Their lives will be changed beyond recognition. The gospel is the message of God's transforming rule that brings judgment and death to the old, yet promises life and new creation in Jesus Christ. Sometimes we forget that, that the gospel includes and more appropriately starts with judgment. God says we are not good enough on our own. We are separated from Him because of our sin. And it is only through Jesus Christ that we come to Him. And so we need to see that Jesus does not invite these men to consider the gospel. He does not invite them to come along if they choose. Jesus' call to discipleship is dramatically, dramatically authoritative. It It quite literally compels these men to follow. And this fits with the overall pattern we see in the Old Testament where God calls and commissions and his people obey and follow. And so Jesus' call so overpowers these disciples that their lives will never be the same again. They will never be the same again. They will never be the same again. And so when we consider Jesus' authority to, to call, we should understand that as he has authority. That when he calls, it is a call of authority. It is not an invitation to be considered. It is a call to be obeyed. Which leads us to the second point. How should we think about the life of discipleship? How should we respond to Jesus? Well, the kingdom of God, as I've said, is something that God himself creates. It's something that God creates. It does not come through our work or our efforts, although God uses our work and our efforts. God is not sitting around waiting for his church to somehow get it together so that his kingdom can start. God is establishing that himself, and he uses his people who are faithful. And what we see in Jesus is that the kingdom of God is on the move. That it's on the move. It's already advancing. It's happening. The kingdom of God is happening. The way in which we see Jesus 
The way he seeks his disciples, as I said, sets him apart from the other teachers of his day. The other ones would wait for people to come to them, to recognize their greatness, to want to be with them. And Jesus says, nope, I am coming to you. I am coming to you. He takes the initiative, not us. He calls. We do not decide that he is worth following. Jesus comes after us. He does not wait for us to come to him. You see, if it were up to us, we would never choose to follow Jesus. If it were up to us, we would never choose. You see, Romans 3 verse 11 says this, no one understands, no one seeks for God. We love our sin too much. One pastor notes this, disciples of Jesus are not those who simply fill pews at worship, fill out pledge cards, attend occasional Bible studies, and offer to help out with work at the church every now and again. He says, when, hooked, when one is hooked by Jesus, one's whole life and purpose are transformed. When one is hooked by Jesus, one's whole life, one's whole purpose is transformed. This is why the understanding of the Old Testament background of fishers of men is important. You see, the call to discipleship is the call to have our sin judged to walk away from our sin, to adopt Jesus' way of living, to adopt Jesus' mission of advancing the kingdom of God in the world. When we follow Jesus, we are saying that we are going to wholeheartedly engage in discipleship. That means sharing the gospel with the lost. It means walking with new believers as they come to learn and understand the Bible. It means dealing with conflict. It means dealing with everything that our life brings to us, whether that's sickness, whether that's stress, whether that's struggle, whether that's financial issues, whether it's a job-related matter. Discipleship touches all of it. Discipleship influences all of it. And so let me make a few points as I bring this to a close. To be a disciple of Jesus, to be a disciple of Jesus means this, to follow him unconditionally. If we are to be a disciple of Jesus, we don't say, Jesus, I'll follow you up until this point, and then I'm not going any further. To be a follower of Jesus, we follow unconditionally. He sets the terms of what it means. It means that Jesus is going somewhere. To be a disciple of Jesus means that he's going somewhere and he requires his disciples to come along with him. He requires his disciples to come along with him. It means, brothers and sisters, that we are not called to a program of becoming better people. It means that we are called to service in the kingdom of God. It means that we have a mandate on how we are to conduct ourselves. To be a disciple of Jesus means that we are adopting Jesus' way of living. That we are adopting Jesus' way of doing things, of how he thinks, of how he acts, of how he engages with one another, of how we deal with conflict with one another, of how we speak to one another and care for one another, for how we serve one another. And so I want to ask a few questions as I bring this to a close. First one is this. We need to ask ourselves, am I seeing the kingdom established through Jesus and responding through repentance? 
Am I seeing very clearly what Mark is saying, that the kingdom of God is established? Am I responding in repentance? Or am I harboring sin? Am I saying yes to Jesus to a certain point? And if that's where you are, then you need to recognize and that that's not acceptable to God, that God demands wholehearted repentance, wholehearted faith. And the second question is this, have I rightly understood the call to discipleship? Have we rightly understood what it means to be a follower of Jesus? Have we rightly understood that by saying yes to him, we're saying yes to salvation, but also yes to his mission of establishing the kingdom through discipleship? The kingdom of God radically redefines everything about our lives. It radically redefines how we think about the world, how we think about everything involved in our lives. And so we can never, brothers and sisters, we can never think too much about it. We can never think too seriously about what it means to follow Jesus in the context of our lives individually, but also our lives corporately as a New Testament local church. And what this text means is that God has given Theresa Baptist Church a very clear mission to carry out the work of advancing the kingdom of God, which happens primarily, which happens primarily in our lives, in our lives. Let's pray together. Lord, your word is clear. Your word is good. Word breathes life into us. God, we can come to you in prayer because you have established your kingdom through your son, that you have saved a people for yourself through your son. We can come to you, Lord, with our hurts, with our worries, with our anxieties, because you are a God who cares and you invite us to cast our cares on you. You remind us, Lord, that you keep our coming in and our going out. You remind us, God, that through the gospel you are dealing with the ultimate reality, which is dealing with our sin by putting it to death in Jesus Christ and causing us to walk in new life in him. You cause us, Lord, to look beyond this life and to see life eternal with you. So, Lord, I pray, as your word has been so clear this morning, that we would, we would contemplate in our hearts and our minds the realities of your kingdom here and now, the realities of your kingdom in our own hearts and in our own lives, that we would ask the question, have I, am I repenting before the realities of your kingdom? Am I faithfully following? <clears throat> Lord, now as we sing, I pray that we would sing with full hearts, worshipful hearts, hearts that are totally in love with you, hearts that are hooked on you. We ask these things in your holy name. Amen. <clears throat> Let me invite you to stand. As we stand, the altar's open. I'm available for prayer. But let's stand now and respond to the word of the Lord.
While the many here continue to pray, and rightly so, I want to read Psalm 23. Psalm 23 says this, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes us to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. And even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For you, O God, are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely, goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Lord, we come to you now with heavy hearts. Lord, if we're honest, confused minds and struggling faith because you are a God who can handle broken hearts, confused minds, and struggling faith. Lord, we lift up Desiree to you right now and ask, Lord, that you would put your hand on her, that you would heal her totally. Lord, we ask that of you. We ask that in faith. We ask that knowing that you love her, that you have created her, that you are holding her together even now. Lord, I ask even more that you would strengthen her faith in these days. That you would give her a steady and steadfast hope in you. That our lives, Lord, are not meant to be lived here forever. That you teach us, Lord, that in these moments of pain and confusion, Lord, you teach us the promise of 2 Corinthians 4, that we look not to the things that we can see. We look not to those things, Lord. But our hope is in the things we can't see, the things that are eternal, because you dwell eternally. You tell us in Colossians 3 that our lives are hidden with Christ in God. You tell us, Lord, in Psalm 23 that you walk with us even in the valley of the shadow of death, that you shepherd us in those moments, that you prepare a table, that you cause our cups to overflow, that you give us the promise, surely we will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Amen. 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 So, Lord, now, We come to you in prayer. We come to you with our anxieties because you can handle it. And we ask for steady faith, for healing. We ask that you would be glorified, O God. We ask these things in your holy name. Amen.